Good morning, Sun Valley. I want you to know, Jesse and Stacey, I do not judge you for making my eyes misty. Uh, and thank you so much for your testimony. Friends, it's good to be here together because clearly God is at work. Well, that passage sets the stage well for what Jesus would have us consider this morning. See, no one likes to be judged, but it seems that most people like to judge others. There's almost nothing more human than to lift ourselves up by judging others critically. And as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount today, I'd like to share a cautionary tale with you about a woman uh, named Judging Jody. <laughs> judging Jody. So as you listen about judging Jody, see if this rings a bell with your experience of judgmentalism. Judging Jody looked askew with upturned nose at me and you, and everywhere she went she saw people breaking God's good law. Priding herself on being right, self-righteous Jody was a fright. For all you had to do was slip and she'd be there with her judgment whip. She'd come beside you with a smile and treat you like a little child with lots of scripture in her hand. She'd pin you down right where you'd sinned. While all along she failed to see that from her eye there grew a tree, a great big fat judgmental log that kept her spirit in a fog. Until she died and went to meet our Savior at his judgment seat, Jody thought that he'd approve of all the sinners she'd subdued. But to her shock, dismay, and shame, the Lord's approval never came. Instead, he said, I never knew a more self-righteous one than you. And if you'd ever known my grace, it would have slowed your judgment pace. But as it stands, you're on your own, right here before my judgment throne. Depart from me into the pit for which your hardened spirits fit. My friends, please heed this tragic tale. Cease from judgment and prevail. See, we come in our study in the Sermon on the Mount to this most well-known of all passages, at least to non-Christians. You see, almost everyone has a favorite Bible passage. And for those who aren't in Christ, Matthew 7.1 takes the cake. Judge not that you be not judged. I remember talking about Christianity with a coworker when I was working at a restaurant in Portland. And I must have said something she didn't like because she was very quick with Matthew 7.1 in the older English, of course. She reminded me, judge not lest ye be judged. And I was like, I don't think I've ever heard you say ye about anything but you've got that down, right? And Jesus speaks right into the heart of this with truth that's both hard to hear, but also very good and very needful. So if you'd please open with me to Matthew chapter seven, we're gonna be considering verses one through six today. Matthew seven, verses one through six. There may be no passage in the Gospels that's more misunderstood and misapplied than the one we're about to read. And what I'm praying for is that with God's help, we'll see how Christ directs our judgments, showing us both what wrong judgment is, but also what right judgment looks like. And we desperately need to know what that looks like because of how prone we are to get it wrong. And so here are the words of Jesus, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, far and away, the most uh, often misunderstood application of this passage is to say that Jesus is telling us to make no judgments whatsoever. Don't tell anybody that they're wrong about anything, because that would just make you a hypocrite, because you're wrong about so many things. Uh, But nothing could be further from the truth of what Jesus actually wants us to walk away from here this morning with, okay? In fact, you can't actually read this passage closely or even halfway closely without seeing that Jesus himself, just in these six verses, makes a judgment. He tells judgmental people that they're hypocrites, and that's a judgment. He tells us to know and be discerning about who would qualify in his illustration as dogs and pigs. That requires us to make judgment. The question is, what kind of judgment does Jesus tell us to make, and what does he tell us to stay far away from? So, in this passage, we actually see two kinds of judgment, and this is going to be the two main headings of our sermon today, wrong judgment and right judgment. Jesus spends most of these verses targeting wrong judgment, and then he helps us understand what right judgment looks like. And perhaps the fact that he spends most of his time here focusing on wrong judgment tells us something about the way that we're most prone to err. Right? He gives the most attention to what we struggle with the most. See, there's a world of difference between making a true judgment on the one hand and being judgmental on the other. And it's judgmentalism, which is a proud and critical spirit, that Jesus is focusing here on as wrong judgment. It's judgmentalism, he says, steer far away from. But that doesn't mean not making any judgment at all. In John 7, Jesus was telling the Jews to judge with right judgment. But he never says to be critical and judgmental. We'll never, ever find that command anywhere in Scripture. It tends to legalism, and I think we know well how Jesus feels about that. In the first four verses of our passage, Jesus cautions us seriously against judgmentalism. And so, how does Jesus help us understand what wrong judgment looks like? Well, the first thing he points out is that wrong judgment is self-righteous. Wrong judgment is self-righteous. This is the idea of verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if we stop there at verse 1 and don't go any further, we may understand how so many people come away thinking that any kind of judgment is off the table. But like I said, we can't take verse 1 in isolation. And even in these six verses, we we see Jesus requiring some kind of judgment from us. Scripture is its own best interpreter. And so we start by trying to understand what Jesus means by the words he uses. And the word he uses for judge is a form of the Greek word krino. And krino here carries the meaning of harsh condemnation. Harsh condemnation towards someone else. It's far from simply pointing out that someone is wrong. No, this is the kind of judgment that we see in a self-righteous pharisaical attitude kind of attitude that shows no grace, is very quick to have a criticism, and always is there to help you know where you need to get back on the right path, you know, because of love, 
right? No. This is actually what Jesus' half-brother James commands us not to do in, uh, in James chapter 4. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James uses the exact same word with the exact same meaning that Jesus does. And the problem with this kind of judgment is that it's self-righteous. You know you're in self-righteous territory when you're taking God's job description onto yourself and trying to do it better than he does. That's what self-righteousness is. But James says, no, there's one judge. It's God. There's one lawgiver. And the law he gives is his law, not yours, not mine. He's able to save and to destroy. When we sit in judgment on others, we're sitting in his seat and declaring ourselves righteous and our law as supreme. And everybody who falls short of our law is condemned. The problem with self-righteousness, though, is that it hogs the throne of our hearts and it doesn't leave any room for Christ's righteousness, which is actually the the righteousness that we need more than any other, isn't it? So self-righteousness gets in the way of Christ's righteousness. And we don't want anything to get in the way of Christ's righteousness. It's our life. I'm not saying that anyone who's self-righteous isn't saved. Okay, so hear me clearly. I'm not saying anyone who's self-righteous isn't saved, but I am saying that Jesus warns us seriously here about self-righteousness. If we're saved by grace, then we will ultimately be making war on self-righteousness by looking squarely at Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And if you struggle with that and you need motivation for fighting against your own self-righteousness, then look at verse 2 with me where we see Jesus telling us that self-righteous judgment is self-defeating. This is the second hallmark of wrong judgment. It's self-defeating. We work against ourselves when we judge others in this way. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, wrong judgment sets itself up as the standard instead of looking to God and his word as the standard. And when we sit in judgment on someone else in this way, according to our standard, it's self-defeating because when we stand before Christ, we will be judged with a stricter judgment. And I don't know anybody I've ever talked to who, who, who is trying to get a stricter judgment when they stand before Christ one day, right? That would make no sense whatsoever. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If our trust is in Christ alone and yet we sit in critical judgmentalism on others, we'll find one day that Christ will apply a stricter, harsher judgment standard to us as he evaluates our lives by his righteous law. And it's not that Jesus has two versions of righteousness. No, but in his application of his holiness to our lives, there is something that makes an impact then by the judgmentalism we use now. If we're in Christ, we do not need to fear condemnation, right? We just, that song we sang, it was finished upon that cross is true. The whole Bible declares it. When Jesus said it is finished, it was a legal declaration of fact, We will not be condemned. And yet, 
when we have a critical and judgmental spirit in this life, it will have a dramatic impact on our eternal life. Perhaps a loss of rewards or whatever else this looks like. We're not told exactly. But we know it's not something that we should strive for. <laughs> but if you're outside of Christ and you don't trust him for salvation, then your eternal judgment will be all the worse for the judgmental spirit with which you judged others. And the whole answer to that is to flee to Christ who took judgment for you at that cross. The picture is clear. Do not be judgmental towards others because it will not go well with you when you stand before the judge of all the earth. So wrong judgment is self-righteous. It's self-defeating. We think we win when we judge others because, you know, we feel good. But we actually lose. We lose every time, even if we don't know it. The early church father, John Chrysostom, comments on verse 2 by saying, Thou art making the judgment seat dreadful for thyself, and the account strict. It's a clear warning. There's almost nothing more natural to us as humans than sitting in self-righteous judgment on others, which is why Christ hones in on it here. And, and, and then he gives us a truly funny, and I mean, it's comical, word picture that would have had his disciples chuckling for sure. You know, a ripple of laughter going through the crowd on that Mount of Beatitudes. Because he shows us that not only is wrong judgment self-righteous and self-defeating, but it's hypocritical. And he shows us just how humorously hypocritical it is, beginning in verse 3. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Friends, this is what's referred to as the pot calling the kettle black, right? We say that. And Jesus' disciples, it wouldn't have been lost on them. This idea of someone with a log sticking out of their own eyes. Think about the kind of you know, load-bearing beam that people build houses with. Sticking out of your own eye while you're going around trying to get sawdust out of somebody else's eye. <laughs> but that's the hypocritical blindness of self-righteous judgment. It's actually blind. It doesn't realize it. And you're just like, well, how can you not see a log sticking out of your own eye? But yeah, that's how dangerous it is. It blinds us to reality to that extent. And this is where I think the connection is between how Jesus starts Matthew 7 and what he's just told us all through Matthew 6. So if you actually look back in your Bible with me to verses 2 and 5 and 16 in Matthew 6, we're going to see this connection as Jesus helps us as his redeemed followers to flee from hypocrisy like the, the scribes and Pharisees. So he says in verse 2, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Friends, hypocrites seek themselves which is why the kind of judgment Jesus condemns here is a self-righteous judgment, because it's all about us, about elevating our view of ourselves, about 
others seeing us as better than we are, about being esteemed in this world. And Jesus says for everybody after that kind of esteem, this is all they get. And then in chapter 7, he tells us that if we do that, what we receive in heaven is actually stricter judgment. And if we don't repent of our sins, then condemnation. I mean, Paul takes aim at this when he writes Romans, and he uses that exact same word, krino, with the same meaning that Jesus and James have. He says in Romans 2, this is very striking, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Friends, the grace about which we have sung, the mercy that is preached to us every week in our liturgy, that is preached every week from this pulpit, the kindness and the mercy and the goodness of God is meant to do one thing, to lead us to repentance, to lead us to Jesus. And when we are being led to Jesus, it has a crucifying effect on self-righteousness because we know that Jesus is the only righteousness we've got. Hypocrisy has no place for those of us who have new life in Christ. God sits in judgment on hypocrites, and Christ was crucified on account of our hypocrisy. And so when we're judgmental, we blind ourselves to our own sins and take an often ironic aim at those whose sins are much smaller than ours by comparison. And so sure, in our judgments, we can... We can pluck the low-hanging fruit of debauchery or Satanism like we saw at the Grammys the other night, if you watch the Grammys. <laughs> but all the while, evil pride can lurk in our own hearts, which is invisible to our judgmental spirits and quite dangerous because it's very clear to God. Wrong judgment is self-righteous, self-defeating, and hypocritical. And Christ warns us to recognize it for what it is and make war against it in our hearts as we look to his redeeming grace. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Because perhaps for you, like me, it gets a little bit uncomfortable right about now. Since judgmentalism is so natural for us and so dangerous to our souls, should we just give off making any judgments at all? Let the Romans do what the Romans are going to do? Keep to ourselves? Live and let live. I mean, that is what so many Christians have concluded from what Jesus says in this passage. I'd suggest that we keep reading because Jesus keeps us from falling off to one interpretive side or the other, from one error or another. See, Jesus has painted a clear picture for us of what wrong judgment looks like, but in the process, he never actually gives us the option of not judging. Think about this. For the Christian, judgment is part of obedient Christian living. Jesus warns us of what the wrong kind looks like, but now he shows us what the right kind is. Any Christian 
who refuses to discern between these things, between righteousness and unrighteousness, holiness and unholiness, who never opposes evil, who never stands firmly for the truth, is actually a Christian who's in disobedience to the Lord. Look at what Jesus says in verse 5 and verse 6. Jesus says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. It's easy to think that it's loving to not say something against sin, but that actually twists Christian love, and it confuses righteous judgment with self-righteous judgmentalism. Two things that we actually need to keep quite clear and distinct. Righteous judgment on the one hand, and self-righteous judgmentalism on the other. I mean, take John the Baptist, for example. Why was he thrown in prison? Because he went to an unsaved political leader, Herod Antipas, and he, con- he confronted him about taking his sister-in-law as his own wife. And once we get past the ick factor, um, we're go- what's going on? Why is John doing this? Well, John, in righteousness, confronts the sin of somebody who was supposed to be a leader in Israel, And that required John to make right judgment. But he was not self-righteous or hypocritical in the process. Or or our own call to walk in holiness. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, it includes a command to oppose evil. He says this, he says, Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Friends, the reason that fundamentalism and legalism have such a bad name in American Christianity isn't because the church has judged. It's because in making right judgment, it has slipped into self-righteous hypocrisy. It has had no grace for those who need grace the most. It has not preached mercy as it's also condemned evil. But we have to take Jesus at his word And we have to call sin what it is, but we have to guard in our own hearts because we ourselves are so prone to that tendency as well. In his commentary on this verse, John MacArthur says, to ignore evil is to encourage it. To keep quiet about it is to help promote it. The verb here translated expose can also carry the idea of reproof, correction, punishment, or discipline. We are to confront sin with intolerance. But friends, what Jesus shows us is that there's a way to be intolerant that is quite gracious. There's a way to condemn that is quite loving. There's a way to be humble and yet clear about righteousness. And that's what Jesus helps us to see in the next two verses in our passage. Let's talk about what right judgment looks like. Well, friends, it's very, if you miss, if you get nothing else from this sermon, get this. Right judgment begins with yourself. Right judgment begins with judgment toward self. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. So before approaching someone else about their sin, we need to do heart-level business with God about our own sin, to take the log out of our own eye. Remember Paul's warning in Romans 2, those who pass judgment on others are often guilty of the very same things. And if you want to know what's a handy way to kind of figure out where we are probably 
needing to start looking in our own lives, figure out where we are most harsh in others' lives. That's oftentimes a litmus test. We need to be quick to confess our own sin to God on a daily basis. It would be wise to ask a close brother or sister in Christ, where are you seeing in my life sin that I might not be aware of? That's a godly and humbling practice. We must be slow to find fault with others and make sure that we're seeing clearly, seeing clearly through the lens of a rightly interpreted Bible. You can find anything in the Bible to back up anything you want to say to anybody. The key is a rightly interpreted Bible, which is why we need the church, which is why we need to go and be slow to condemn others. Go to an elder or a mature brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, what am I missing here in the scriptures as I'm thinking through this? That is fellowship that serves to edify, build up, and guard us from the kind of legalism that we're all too prone to go into on our own. Legalistic judgmentalism grows in the wastelands of our own opinions being treated as if they're God's law. But righteous judgment cuts down logs before it cleans up sawdust. Now, if anyone thinks that all this talk of self-examination and being slow to speak means that we're making light of sin around us, that we're, that we're just not taking it seriously, that it might keep us from actually exposing the darkness, think again. Because the rest of verse 5 is here for us. Because after we take the log out of our own eye, Jesus says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, friends, in Jesus' metaphor, both specks and logs are sin. And Jesus actually addresses both. He doesn't say, take the log out of your own eye, then go shut up. No, he says, if you're going to deal with sin the way I tell you to, you've got to start with yourself so that you will then be in a humble, God-dependent, grace-filled, because you've just known God's grace on your own with him in your relationship. You will be on that basis able to go and deal with somebody else. And until you're at that spot, of course keep your mouth closed. But follow Jesus to that spot and then go and show the speck to your brother. And so here Jesus shows us what right judgment looks like toward believers, toward our brother who has a speck in his eye. He says that right judgment begins with yourself and it gives you a cleansed heart before God that allows you to help your brother or sister in Christ in a loving way. And so the, the, the bumpers in the bowling lane of our spiritual life are actually built into this passage for us. Because when we do it this way, Jesus guards our hearts and our minds and he keeps us from becoming legalistic. And you may think that addressing a speck in another's life is being nitpicky, and it certainly can be, but uh, that's not exactly what Jesus is after. I mean, you may even be thinking of the passage I thought of, 1 Peter 4, 8, where the apostle says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. But probably the most common mistake in what Peter is saying, in, in about thinking about what Peter is saying, is to think that Peter's telling us to, to, to be in the habit of ignoring sins, right? Love covers over a multitude of sins as if it ignores that they are ever there, but that's not what Peter's saying. He's going back to Proverbs. James does the same thing. And the point is that love covers a multitude of sins in forgiveness. That's what covers a multitude of sins. It's the forgiveness of God and our forgiveness because of his in the lives of someone else. And for forgiveness to happen, there often needs to be an acknowledgement of sin and repentance from it. 
Which is why James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders back or wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's not ignoring it. You see, dealing with sin with one another isn't judgmental. It's actually commanded. It's commanded. And of course, Jesus' whole point here is not to deal with it judgmentally, which is why he first tells us to examine ourselves, our sins, our motives. Do we actually love the person we're going to, or do we just want to be vindicated in the name of love? So we need to come humbly, because every time one of us confronts another one of us, there are two sinners involved needing grace in that equation. Okay? Right judgment is repentant because it begins with ourselves. Right judgment is gracious and loving because it seeks to win a brother. And that's exactly how Paul puts it when he tells the Galatians how they are supposed to address sin in one another's lives. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We must be gracious and gentle in loving correction for two reasons. First, God is gracious and gentle with us. And if we're not dealing with sin the way that God does, friends, we're doing something wrong. And second, we're weak. We're prone to wander. We should be the most gracious people in dealing with one another because we know what spiritual weakness looks like from the inside out. And loving correction is worthy work because at the end of the day, it's about winning a brother or sister back to the Lord who redeemed them. It's a rescue mission, done in love if done rightly. And the result is that Jesus has a pure bride when he returns. That's what this is about. Jesus is interested in the holiness of his church, not because Jesus doesn't want us to have any fun, because he wants us to have more joy than we could possibly imagine. And when you think about those times in your life when you are running full bore into sin of whatever form it is, are you happy? You may feel good, but you're miserable. And so Jesus shows us joy beyond compare, and that's a joy that involves getting in one another's lives in love. And that's what the command of church discipline is all about. It's about the purity of the bride of Christ. And so we see this entire thing in summary in Matthew 18, a passage we're well familiar with, but oftentimes it too gets misapplied. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Friends, that guards against gossip. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, okay? And in that case, there's two people who know about it, you and him. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he repents, there's three or four people who know about it. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And that's the whole body of Christ on a rescue mission. But if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And friends, if we take Jesus' words seriously here, the picture we come away with is that church discipline actually happens on a daily basis. It's one of the most routine, mundane things in the Christian life. Why? Because it looks like a wife going to her husband and correcting him gently. It looks like a father shepherding his child, 
a friend going to a friend over coffee and saying, hey, have you noticed? Or an elder talking to a member of the church. If a sinning believer is sensitive to the Lord, then that's going to be enough. And that's usually where most church discipline ends, right? Because the Holy Spirit, that's what he uses in the light of the word to draw us back. He does this over and over and over again because what a gracious God he is. But if there's no repentance, then the kind of judgment seen in Matthew 18 has to take place for the glory of God and for the good of the church. And, and this is, this is critical because this is the aim, for the restoration, repentance, and forgiveness of the sinning brother or sister. When church discipline is done in condemnation, when it's done to make an example, when it's done to stop having to deal with this thing over here, Friends, it is done entirely wrong. It may be looking like church discipline, but it's not. Church discipline aims at restoration. It aims at forgiveness. And it, and it's, it is painful all along the way. The final step of pursuing someone who claims to follow Christ but who will not repent of clear sin is what's often referred to as excommunication. And it's part of what it means to judge rightly. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it in the terms, the same word, krino, that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, except Paul uses it with a different shade of meaning. He uses it to call the church to judge unrepentant sin by calling it what it is and not giving quarter to it. Okay, by not giving quarter to it. And it's not a matter of harsh judgmentalism. It's a matter of Christian love. Listen to Paul. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, which is something external, or greed, which is something internal, or is an idolater, internal. You see, friends, this is, we're getting to the heart. Reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Well, that seems harsh. Why? Because, friends, he tells us earlier in the chapter, because there are some people who will only be saved by being handed over to Satan so that they can see the absence of fellowship in the church, realize what they're missing, and come fleeing back to Christ who alone can wash them clean. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? That's our word again, krino, judging. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So if someone calls himself a Christian and yet persistently doubles down in sin when gently approached by another believer, by two or three believers, by elders, by the church, Paul says that the judgment of excommunication must happen so that the person might be restored to Christ and his church by recognizing the severity of his sin. And this was the command that the Lord gives through Paul, the same Lord who tells us in our passage, judge not that you be not judged. Wrong judgment is self-righteous, hypocritical. Right judgment is gracious, loving, first of all, repentant, so that we're not hypocrites. And it looks like this sometimes. And we need to understand this because the accusation leveled against churches, as it has been leveled against Sun Valley Church, is that it's a judgmental and unloving thing to do. And surely the whole thing can be ju done judgmentally but not if we're following Jesus, not if we're following Paul, not if we're taking God at his word. So right judgment begins with yourself as you repent of sin, and then it goes outward toward believers in grace and love, even if it's sometimes tough. 
And in verse 6, we see that right judgment is also expressed toward hardened unbelievers. Hardened unbelievers. And this is where we get the, into our pigs and dogs part of the sermon. Right? Pigs and dogs. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He just completely jumped subjects, didn't he? <laughs> no, not really. You see, right judgment is repentant, gracious, and loving, but it's not foolish. It's not foolish. We're never called to be naive, to have the wool pulled over our eyes. Christians having the wool pulled over their eyes is why sexual predators target the church, because they've learned, and there's interviews on record with sex offenders saying this, yeah, I went to the church because they'll let anybody in. And it's like, well, yes, we will, calling them to repentance, but not to work with the kids. But yet, we are to be wise in this world. In verse 6, look at this. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Friends, Jesus commands us to be wise in our exercise of judgment. And he uses two vivid metaphors to make the point here. That when it comes to sharing Christ with others, whether we're trying to help them get a speck out of their eye or trying to call them to repentant faith and to know Christ, Whatever the case is, we need to use discretion. Not everyone is ready to receive the truth of the gospel or the precious doctrines of the faith. The Proverbs have a category of sinner called mocker or proud scoffer. This isn't just somebody who's indifferent to Christ. This is someone who's hostile to Jesus. Who, though you go to them again and again and winsomely share Jesus, they're going to tear you down and take you out. And Jesus tells us clearly, don't throw the precious truths of the gospel before those kind of people. They will mock you and and even assault Christians who share it with them. And these are the people that Jesus calls dogs and pigs here. So I don't want to hear anybody going around and saying, oh, well, my brother didn't listen to me, so he's a dog. Or, you know, my sister in Christ, you know, she's just doubling down on her sin. What a pig. (laughs) Don't do that. Jesus says not to give what is holy to dogs. Now, when we think of dogs, most of us get a smile on our face because of cute, cuddly little dogs. I've, I've kind of always wanted a pug, but my wife doesn't want one, and so we don't have one. Um, but <laughs> if, if you were listening to Jesus on the Mount of Beatitudes, you wouldn't get a smile on your face when he brings up the dogs. You'd get a grimace because you knew what dogs looked like. They were mangy, disease-infested, vicious scavengers who roamed the streets of the cities of Israel and would bite you and attack if you got too close. They were not a good deal. You wouldn't go to the pound and bring one home to your kids. And it would be unthinkable for a Jew to take some of the holy meat that was sacrificed at the altar. Because when you sacrifice meat on the altar, you'd often take a portion home with you to eat. And as you were going along the way, you would not throw it to the dogs. It was holy. And that's exactly the kind of picture that Jesus paints here for us. He's like, you wouldn't do it with holy meat. Don't do it with holy truth. False teachers in the church who intentionally distort the truth to make shipwreck of other people's souls. Okay? And I won't get into speculation about who today might qualify as false teachers. But the principle stands. False teachers who make shipwreck of other people's souls intentionally are the dogs. Paul warns the Philippians about those who distort the gospel. He says in Philippians 3, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Pigs weren't much better. (laughs) I love bacon, but if I were a Jew in love for Jesus, I would not have eaten bacon. 
in the Old Testament because the Lord would give me strength. And that's the only reason I wouldn't eat bacon. Pigs would eat just about anything, but they were unclean. And if you took pearls, which were so precious that most people in the ancient world couldn't even afford one, which is why Jesus likens the gospel to a pearl of great price, you would never throw a pearl in front of a pig. But if you were the Donald Trump of Judaism and you had enough pearls to spare, I guess you might see him throwing one before, just to see what would happen. Because pearls look like peas. Pigs eat peas. And if one of these wild pigs were to, to, to go and try to eat a pearl because he thought it was a pea, and then he was like, that is not a funny joke, he would turn and probably attack you and take you out. Okay? And that's the image that Jesus paints here for us. And he's making the same point. Don't throw what is holy before these types of people who only will chew it up and spit you out. The Apostle Peter brings false teachers again into view, and he takes up the very same images that Jesus does here. He says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, friends, we need to take what Jesus says here in verse 6 to heart in at least two ways. One, we need to be wise in how we approach others about spiritual truth. If someone is hostile to the truth of Christ and repetitively unwilling to repent of sin, leave them be, pray for God to get a hold of their heart, and move on. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, go find harvest field that's ripe. Don't use this as an excuse not to try, but once there's a persistent, stubborn, hostile response to Jesus, trust him. He's got this. Not one of those for whom he died is going to be lost. You can actually go afford to find another sinner who needs the same grace that you enjoy. The apostles shook the dust off of their feet when people were hostile to Christ, unless Christ specifically told them to stay, like he did to Paul in Corinth. Don't try to be more spiritual than Jesus by casting your pearls before pigs and wondering why things aren't going so well. Jesus tells us. But second, and I would guess that this is actually our bigger problem, it's not that we keep putting pearls before pigs, but it, it's that we're not doing much pearl casting at all, right? As much as we need to show right judgment in who we talk to, we need to take care that we're talking to people about Jesus to begin with. That is what we need to do. That's how we're going to find out who the pigs are and who they aren't. We need to double down on sharing Jesus because that's exactly what he's using to get a hold of people out there the same way that that's exactly what he used to get a hold of us who are in here. And there we have it. Specks and logs, pigs and dogs. It's been a big day. <laughs> you know, there's wrong judgment and there's right judgment. Wrong judgment is self-righteous, self-defeating, and hypocritical. It kills Christian unity. Right judgment is repentant, gracious, loving, and wise, and it builds up the church. I'll be honest with you. The Lord took me to task this week in my study, and I suspect that there may be one or two of you for whom he has taken you to task this morning. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Because Jesus talks to us here about wrong judgment and right judgment. But we need to understand both of these kind of judgments in the light of divine judgment. Divine judgment. Well, what do I mean? As we sang toward the beginning of our service, God is the righteous judge of all the earth. He will do justice. He, we will all stand before him one day and according to his righteous standard be judged. And on our own, according to that righteous standard, all of us are guilty and condemned. 
But that's precisely why our Savior came, isn't it? What did he do upon that cross? He didn't just set us an example. No, he actually bore the righteous judgment of God for your sins and for mine. And he did it. And he continues to convict us of sin, not so that he would condemn us, but because the kindness of the Lord is meant to bring us to repentance. So if you hear and feel the kindness of God this morning, as Jesus is drawing you in, don't leave that here. Take it with you. Take it to heart. He rose again because it was finished upon that cross. Jesus actually turns judgmental saints into gracious saints. Friends, this is the work he's doing. So that in the next 20 years, Sun Valley Church would be known even more for its love, even more for its commitment to truth, even more for its gospel-centered evangelism. And if you recognize that you're guilty of wrong judgment toward others, don't keep going like judging Jody. No. Come to Jesus, the judge who was judged for you. Friends, this is our hope, and it's a good one. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hard, difficult, necessary words that you preached to us in the Sermon on the Mount. As we have now turned the corner into this last chapter, we begin with these words and find conviction, conviction of how prone we are to take your spot in judgment upon others. Oh Lord, have mercy on us for our hypocritical self-righteousness. Forgive us for a judgmental spirit. Lord, you know where each one of us is prone to wander in this regard. We praise and thank you that you do not leave us where our sins deserve, but in your mercy, you judge our sins in Jesus at the cross, that we might know your mercy and be merciful with one another. Give us discernment, give us wisdom. Lord, it's so hard for us to judge rightly the same way it is to be angry righteously without quickly turning into sinful anger, into sinful judgment. Purify your church, Lord Jesus. And if there are any here today, Lord, who are unrepentant, isolated from you, draw them back through the kind, gracious, pleading word of a brother or sister. Restore your people, purify your bride, Lord Jesus, that we may be ready when we see you once again. Well, for us now living today for the first time. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.